Trump the Warmonger versus the Foreign Policy Wonks of Peace, Part 2. It took Trump just one year to prove how the foreign policy establishment had been selling false narratives to the public about everything. By Brian Cates. Obama was very upset during the transition period. It should be remembered that all through the transition period from November 8th, 2016 to January 20th, 2017, the same people who'd loudly told the American public that electing Donald J. Trump as the 45th president of the United States of America would be a massive and unbelievable blunder found themselves scrambling to deal with the nightmare of an incoming Trump administration. One of the people most stridently voicing the idea that a serious mistake was unfolding was the man who was about to be forced to hand the U.S. presidential baton to Donald Trump, Barack H. Obama. Obama spent the two and a half months of the transition period as the Trump team prepared to take power, reminding the entire world that he, as an anointed member of the political class having gone to all the right schools and surrounded by all the right foreign policy advisors, had been unable to make any headway at all on the growing threats of ISIS in the Middle East and of a nuclear North Korea. If he, being so smart and sophisticated and nuanced in his approach to dealing with these foreign policy hot-button issues, had been unable to make any successful progress, what in the freaking world gave anyone the expectation that Trump, a total beginner and a neophyte with no foreign policy experience whatsoever, could possibly succeed where Obama had failed? Does anyone recall that first year of the Trump administration in which the entire fake news media repeated endlessly the narratives of the foreign policy establishment that people needed to take cover and prepare for the absolute worst now that the adults were leaving the room and this alpha male dumbass was going to be put in charge? I know the major thing that gets endlessly rehashed was the claim that Donald Trump was a foreign agent of the Russian government due to the Steele dossier and the sound and fury that was unleashed when General Michael Flynn, Trump's incoming national security advisor, was supposedly shown in illegally leaked transcripts violating the Logan Act. But that narrative was only one of many that was being deployed against the new Trump administration at the time. There were many, many others, such as the narrative that Trump, the impulsive braggart and bully, would not be able to help himself as he alienated and infuriated other world leaders with his nonstop boorish behavior. But One of the biggest narratives that was driven against Trump in the early days was that he would completely screw up the delicate situation that currently existed on the Korean Peninsula. Trump himself drove this narrative home by telling the press he'd warned Trump that soon after taking office he would be forced to go to war with North Korea. The outgoing president had also apparently told Trump he himself had only narrowly averted going to war with North Korea. Obama had supposedly spent years 
trying all the different sophisticated and nuanced strategies suggested to him by his bevy of key and highly placed foreign policy advisors and had gotten exactly nowhere with the Kim Jong-un regime in Pyongyang. One of the key principles that Obama appeared to have based his North Korea policy upon was that he should give no face whatsoever to the leader of that country. If you propose a meeting, you set the time and place, and you refuse to meet with Kim personally. You order him around like a dog and put hoops in front of him and order him to jump through them in order to prove to the watching world that he is subserviently obedient to you. This was the main strategy pursued by American diplomats and successive U.S. presidential administrations since the Eisenhower era. It's also the chief reason that there was no progress in talks with North Korea for around 60 years. Even the agreed framework agreement between President Bill Clinton, former President Jimmy Carter, and the North Korean regime turned out to be a colossal failure when North Korea informed the world it had taken all the bribes offered to it as part of the deal and then had kept right on developing its nuclear weapons program. Obama and the usual suspects of the foreign policy establishment wonks that make the rounds in the fake news media slathered it on thick with the public. You have made a serious and grave error here by exchanging one of ours in Hillary Clinton for a complete outsider who won't have the first freaking clue what he's doing when it comes to dealing with genuine threats like North Korea. This brings me to my next point. Hillary Clinton was supposed to continue Obama's awesome, intelligent, and nuanced foreign policy. After eight years of abject foreign policy failures the world over, Obama had been confident he was going to be able to hand the presidential baton off to his chosen successor, his former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. Now, if you read part one of this series, you've had your memory refreshed as to just how badly American foreign policy was conducted from 2009 to 2013 during Clinton's tenure as Obama's first Secretary of State. And yet, thanks to the ass-covering talents of both the fake news and the foreign policy establishment by the summer of 2016, all the bad results in Libya, Egypt, Syria, and elsewhere had all been forgotten and forgiven. Nothing that went wrong in the Middle East or with North Korea or anywhere else was really Obama or Clinton's fault, you see. They'd done the best they could, following the best advice given to them by the best advisors. So, with Kim, voicing ever more strident nuclear threats from Pyongyang and with ISIS continuing to gallivant around the Middle East, seizing more territory and ludicrously holding it, the narrative was driven home. This was certainly not the time to rebuff the foreign policy acumen of someone like Hillary Clinton for that of a complete outsider like Donald Trump, whose one key foreign policy advisor was a supposed far-right extremist in General Michael Flynn, whom Obama had fired as head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, back in 2014. Obama 
had fired Flynn for daring to call him out for his disastrous foreign policy in the Middle East region. Then Obama had gone right back to spending two and a half more years doing that stupid shrugging act and pretending to be absolutely helpless when it came to stopping ISIS's wave of terror. And it worked. After Flynn was gone, the message had been driven home. Do not challenge Obama on his foreign policy narrative for that region. Then, much to Obama's abject horror, his hand-picked successor, Hillary Clinton, who had been anointed by the globalist foreign policy establishment, managed somehow by some arcane act of wizard and sorcery, lose the 2016 presidential election to Donald J. Trump. Trump rejects Obama's advice about Michael Flynn. On top of letting everybody know he'd warned Trump he'd soon be leading the country into war with North Korea, Obama also very helpfully revealed to the news media that he'd strongly advised Trump to toss General Flynn ass first off of his tra transition team. Obama had told Trump that Flynn would give him incredibly bad advice, and so it would be a very wise thing for Trump to ditch Flynn before moving into the White House. Unfortunately, Trump didn't listen to Obama, which probably upset that gay motherfucker. Not to worry, though, because Obama and his brain trust convened on January 4th, 2017 to discuss exactly how they were going to handle the incoming Trump administration and the direct threat they were facing because General Flynn was tapped to be the new national security advisor. I did a rather long thread about that nefarious January 4th, 2017 meeting and the bitter fruit it produced on X a while back, and you can read about that right here, link in the article. The foreign policy establishment made no secret. It was ferociously rooting against Donald Trump during his first year in office. The massive embarrassment of the voting public rejecting the grand dame of the globalist foreign policy establishment to put Donald J. Trump into the White House instead was a slight at and a direct challenge to that establishment that could not go unanswered. And answered it was. I could list literally hundreds of fake news headlines that were run both in print and on TV during the first year of Trump's presidency, which all had the same narrative. By God, we are in trouble now, because by some twist of fate, this complete idiot is now in charge and he's literally making the wrong moves on everything. Trump and Saudi Arabia Trump's first foreign trip as the newly inaugurated president provided the fake news media with a chance to engage in an enthusiastic orgy of negative press coverage. 
especially concerning to all the TV talking heads, was the massive arms deal that the Trump administration was finalizing with Saudi Arabia and the five other members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, GCC, with this key foreign trip. Trump was viciously and incessantly lampooned and mocked during this trip by a fake news media that utterly failed to grasp what it was observing. Of course, the foreign policy establishment whom I have affectionately dubbed the Forever Wars machine also was not being honest about the real reasons they were stridently and loudly objecting to Trump's Saudi Arabia arms deal or his other moves in the region. While plenty of very profitable arms dealing went on in the area for decades, to that point no Western power had dared to sell the GCC advanced up-to-date weaponry and especially not this much high-tech weaponry all at once. What had been going on is that Western governments, led by the war profiteering industry, had been making handsome profits, sending outdated and obsolete weapons platforms to the region, but only enough so that the region could never stabilize and guarantee its own security. And so... Foreign intervention and domination of the region was an unquestioned reality. The U.S. and the Brits and the French and all these other Western powers just had to be there and put military bases in place and maintain a growing presence and make defense contractors a shit ton of money because the nations in the area simply couldn't get it done on their own. During the Cold War, this foreign domination of the region was sold as an absolute necessity because of the USSR. The Soviets were there, and whining and dining, and creating influence over vassal states like Iran, and so we were going to have to be in the region and also creating and developing our own vassal states like Iraq in the 1980s. But... The USSR shuffled off the mortal coil in 1989, while Russia was retrenching and retooling itself from 1990 to 2001. Another compelling reason for the US and growing foreign military excursions into the region was just going to have to be provided. Hence, the rise of Islamic terrorism as the key reason we should not only stay in the Middle East, but be continuously expanding our presence there. When you research into who formed Al-Qaeda and who armed and directed it in its early days before supposedly losing control of it, you discover the CIA and other foreign intelligence agencies were responsible. It continues to be a huge joke how oh-so-very-careful people were to not describe Charlie Wilson as a big CIA asset, which is exactly what he was. This is the cutout method, where you use a flamboyant frontman to hide all the clowns in America activity going on behind him. Think back to how much war profiteering was enabled following the 9-11 attack for such a small investment of just a few hundred million dollars throughout the 1980s and 1990s, 
How much of a return did the Forever Wars machine gain for itself from 2001 to 2020? Conservative estimates place U.S. spending on the war on terror at just north of $2 trillion. How much of that went right into the pockets of the foreign policy establishment at their think tanks and policy centers from generous donations from their partners in the arms development and arms sales industry. Trump was the very first Western leader to tell the Saudis and the Gulf Cooperation Council member states, I know what's been going on, and I am going to put a stop to it. And then he followed through and proved to them that he meant it. The first two things Trump did that sent the forever war machine into an absolute rage was announce that massive arms deal handing the GCC top weaponry instead of the usual outdated by decades junk they usually got. And then he helped them rip the living guts out of ISIS with that new weaponry in less than nine months. As all the usual suspects took to the airwaves and print magazines, Loudly warned, this was a massive mistake. Trump updated the key military forces in the region, especially their quick-strike commando units, into the 21st century with that arms deal. As was feared, this updating of the militaries of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, Bahrain, Kuwait, and Oman had enormous and immediate consequences. The first consequence was the utter defeat and decimation of the ISIS terrorist group, which was never supposed to happen. Trump and ISIS. One of the biggest things the foreign policy establishment will never forgive Trump for was the ease with which he led the U.S. military in assisting the Gulf Cooperation Council's commando forces in utterly wiping out ISIS in just a few months back in 2017. After more than four years of Obama's helpless act, a helpless act that Hillary Clinton was supposed to continue, the sudden destruction of ISIS under Trump was a marked contrast that could not be ignored. ISIS was supposed to be a generational threat. It was supposed to continue expanding its reach and its bloody influence. After all, the people who had carefully created and enabled al-Qaeda had also carefully created and enabled ISIS. And they were expecting at least a very profitable decade or two in return for their investment. Why, imagine the increases in U.S. military presence in the Middle East that would be necessary to contain the ISIS threat along with that of Iran. 
Obama had already managed to get U.S. combat troops on the ground in Syria back in 2014, supposedly to combat ISIS, along with teaching the Bashir Assad regime a lesson for using chemical weapons on its own people. That was a nice start, and the forever war machine was truly looking forward to expanding the U.S. military role in Syria under the mistress of disaster, Hillary Clinton, as well as more deeply embedding the U.S. military presence in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then, Trump just had to go and ruin everything for these people by totally exposing Obama's helpless act for what it was. An act. After watching the speed at which U.S. forces under the command of Donald Trump destroyed ISIS while working in support of GCC commando units, the question of just how hard Obama had really been trying, could not be avoided. Investors Business Daily published this editorial the week that Raqqa fell. Quote, Nine months after President Trump promised to defeat ISIS quickly and effectively, U.S.-backed forces captured Raqqa, which until Tuesday had served as the ISIS capital the battle now is over who deserves credit, Trump or President Obama. Trump, not surprisingly, claims it for himself. It had to do with the people I put in, and it had to do with rules of engagement, Trump said in a radio interview. Before dismissing this as typical Trump self-aggrandizement, consider that for several years Obama insisted that a quick and decisive victory against ISIS was all but impossible. After belittling ISIS as a JV team and then being surprised by its advances, Obama finally got around to announcing a strategy to degrade and ultimately destroy the militant Islamic group. As his strategy dragged on and seemed to go nowhere, Obama kept telling the country that this was just the nature of the beast. Contrast this with Trump. Rather than talk endlessly about how long and hard the fight would be, Trump said during his campaign that if elected, he would convene his top generals and give them a simple instruction. They will have 30 days to submit to the Oval Office a plan for soundly and quickly defeating ISIS. The result of this shift seems pretty obvious. In July, ISIS was booted from Mosul, and this week, Raqqa was liberated. For all intents and purposes, ISIS has been defeated. Trump did in nine months what Obama couldn't in the previous three years. Trump's critics will insist that victory was inevitable, given that Obama had severely degraded ISIS over the previous years and that all Trump did was continue Obama's strategy. But the bottom line is that while Obama preached patience, Trump promised a swift end to ISIS and then delivered on it. End quote. Before the objection is raised as to how the GCC commando units the U.S. military was fighting in support of in this nine-month fight against ISIS were able to use the newly acquired advanced weaponry Trump gave to them, this must be remembered. 
Many of these same GCC commando units were engaging in joint exercises with top U.S. military units in the American Southwest back in 2015 during what became popularly known as Jade Helm. GCC commando forces had had months of training in working in joint operations with U.S. troops while using advanced weaponry long before the campaign to destroy ISIS kicked off in earnest in the spring of 2017. My good friend Thomas Wichter was patiently explaining this on Twitter back in 2018-2019 to people insisting that the U.S. military under Obama's direction was about to invade and lock down the American Southwest and seize all the guns. Trump quickly and decisively removing the generational threat of ISIS in just nine months caused immense problems for the war profiteers of the world. How can they keep destabilizing the Middle East if Trump destroys their pet terrorist groups in short order, not to mention arming the armies of the region with advanced weaponry that guarantees their own security, thereby robbing the forever wars machine of an excuse to keep expanding foreign military presence in the area? The last thing the Forever Wars machine wanted to see was an outbreak of permanent stability in that region of the world with fully equipped militaries quite capable of dealing with their own problems, which often turned out to be problems being summoned into existence by foreign intelligence agencies with nefarious agendas. While Trump was in the process of defanging ISIS, he was also engaged in solving another Gordian knot problem that Obama and all his crack foreign policy advisors had been assuring the public was impossible, getting Kim Jong-un to calm down. Trump and North Korea The very first thing Trump did in dealing with the North Korea issue and Kim Jong-un set the globalist foreign policy establishment into red-faced conniptions. He ditched the 60 years long policy of treating the North Korean leader like a pariah by actually engaging with Kim personally and offering to meet with him in person. It was stunning to contemplate this. No other U.S. president had personally reached out and offered to talk directly to Kim Jong-un on the phone and certainly not in person. Trump offered to do both right off the bat on being sworn in. There was a brief period of the usual tough talk between Trump and Kim as they established their respect for another before Trump made the kind of offer to meet and discuss the important issues with Kim that was never supposed to be done. The entire time Trump was talking with Kim on the phone and setting up a face-to-face -face meeting with the Korean leader in Singapore, then Vietnam, and then in North Korea itself, the entire foreign policy establishment was shrieking for him to stop. That this was exactly the wrong way to calm down the situation. It was almost as if 60 years of non-engagement with North Korean leaders controlled by the foreign policy establishment had been deliberately crafted to fail. Almost. Saving Face 
Trump was the first who offered to negotiate with Kim in a manner that allowed Kim to save face. Face is an Asian reality that is radically misunderstood by the people in the West, but it's vitally important to understand it, to get anywhere with an Asian person. You cannot approach that person as if he is your dog, giving him take-it-or-leave-it orders such as, I am willing to meet with your representative here at this location at this time. This is non-negotiable. Take it or leave it. This is not approaching the Asian person as an equal, allowing that person to save face. For all its vaunted foreign culture acumen, the foreign policy establishment making it a deliberate foundation stone for any dealing with North Korea's leaders that they were only to be approached in a manner that gave them no face whatsoever that they be treated as inferiors to Western negotiators seems clearly designed to ensure no real results were ever achieved. The first person to break the stalemate was President Trump, who rejected all the sage advice being offered to him by the usual foreign policy experts who shouted he was making a major mistake, offering to talk to Kim personally. Trump had Kim engaging in real dialogue and making real concessions. It's painful at this point to contemplate where U.S.-North Korea relations would be right now if the entire foreign policy intelligence agency fake news establishments hadn't conspired to steal the 2020 election from Trump and drive him from office so Joe Biden could take over. Of course, the minute he was sworn in following that fraudulent 2020 election, one of the first things Biden did was go right back to the same kind of no-face policy towards North Korea that hadn't achieved any real gains for the 60 years prior to Trump. And the foreign policy establishment burbles and coos about how awesome it is that mean Trump is now gone and can't muck anything up further for them, and that nice and decent and demented Joe Biden will do anything they advise him to do. As you look around at the world today and contrast the current state of things with the day Donald Trump climbed aboard the helicopter to leave the White House in 2017, ask yourself how Biden listening to these Forever Wars machine advisors is working out for the rest of us. Coming in part three. The best disguise the Forever Wars machine ever came up with was using propaganda to sell themselves as the policy wonks of peace.